This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 9. In chapter 10, we run into a really a good dense patch of red letters to dig into, studies or uh, teachings of our Lord or things that we can pick apart and learn from. So let's jump into chapter 9, verse 18. Um, just a review of the material. We're not going to really dig into some deep teaching in it yet. Uh, we're going to get into the new stuff as quickly as we can. Verse 18, he says, While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler who worshipped him, or and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now, on the way to this man's house, because we've already taught about it, we've already taught about this ruler, talked about uh, what his attitude was, how good it was. He didn't blame God. He confessed Jesus as, or he confessed his faith in Jesus's power. We've already talked about that. But on the way to his house, there's another episode that gets often taught about, often preached about, and that is the woman with the issue of blood. And we talked about her quite a bit a couple of weeks ago, so I don't want to completely repave that road either, but just touch on a couple of points. Verse 20, Behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him. She snuck up on him. No, she wasn't stalking him. Well, she kind of was, but not with ill intentions. She had a desperate need, and I think we discussed with some real, some considerable detail a couple weeks ago what exactly her problem was. You say, well, she had an issue of blood. All right, well, why was that such a big deal? Well, for a few reasons. Just a, a quick review. For a few reasons. First of all, medicine 2,000 years ago, if you were bleeding all the time, that was not good. That's not good now. That's not a good thing now. Much worse back then. Much worse back then. Also, on top of that, we understand that her issue of blood wasn't something like she just had a cut in her arm that wouldn't heal. No, this was, this was pertaining to her sex. This was pertaining to her gender. And so that put her in a different category where the law was concerned. According to the law of Moses, which might sound harsh, but praise God, we're not under the law, so we don't have to worry about it. But according to the law of Moses, a woman during her monthly cycle was considered ritually impure. She was ritually unclean. And so for 12 years, she was ritually unclean. Not once a month, all the time. That means she could not participate in the organized worship. That means that she couldn't participate in, uh, in the... Uh, the organized worship, she couldn't, uh, I don't think she could even attend synagogue. Not, she was pretty much in a state of exile within her own community because of this issue of blood. Because of this issue of blood. So it made her permanently ritually unclean. It made her physically weakened from her illness because it even tells us in, in other gospels, in the other gospels, that not only was she not well from having spent all of her money on physicians, not only was she not well, but she was worse. So she was unclean, she was physically weakened, and she was financially crippled because she had spent all of her earnings. 
Uh, she had spent all of her living. She had spent all of her savings. She really was in a bad way. And we don't read of it, we don't read anything about having a husband either. So it, she might have even been worse off for that. She might have been. Uh, we don't know if she was a widow. We don't know if she was just uh, single, had not been married. Maybe she had been put away by her husband because divorce was pretty common, not necessarily right, but pretty common. And so she was really in a bad state. And so in an act of either desperation or either that or in an act of absolute faith, she came and she approached Jesus from behind. And her thinking was, she says, verse 21, for she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. And so she did. It says so in verse 20. She came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. In verse 22, we read of Jesus' reactions. He, he, Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. What's the lesson here? Some risks are really worth taking. Now that really was a risk because being ritually unclean, according to the law of Moses, she wasn't supposed to go around touching anybody. She wasn't supposed to go around touching anybody. She was supposed to really keep herself separated. But again, that, this was part of a, a medical affliction. So she was taking a risk. She was not only approaching someone else to touch them, she was approaching the Lord to touch the Lord. Okay, but guess what? You're not going to make Jesus unclean. You're not going to make Jesus unclean. And that, that's really kind of a... It, it, I, don't, I want to use the word dichotomy. I don't think I'm using it right, though. I, I don't think that's quite the right word to use. But that really introduces a, a dichotomy, right? whether that's the right word or not, into how things usually worked under the law. Remember how things worked under the law. When you had something that was unclean, that came in physical contact with something that was ritually clean... The cleanness of the clean thing didn't rub off onto the unclean thing and make it unclean. It's completely the opposite. By the law of Moses, if you had someone who was unclean or an item that was unclean or an animal that was unclean that came into contact with something that was clean, it made the clean thing unclean. It made it ritually unclean, either to the even or to the, the end of the day, however the phrasing was, but not in this case because you're not going to make God unclean. And that's one way, that, that is one of the miracles of grace. She came to Jesus in faith, in desperation, in real need. Because, like we said, 12 years she'd been in this state. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, you did what she did, and that was live with it. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people in this life that have simply come to terms with the things that they're facing rather than actually get delivered from them. Let's let that sink in. There are a lot of people, when we run into challenges, I understand, and I'm not making light of anybody's difficulty. Wisdom I received under my first pastor 25 years ago. Never, never, never mock someone in their affliction because no battle is small to the person who is fighting it. doesn't matter how small that battle is. Oh, well, you know, they, they'll get over that. That's no big deal. Well, hey, they're in the midst of that. So they're the ones fighting that fight. Well, this woman had a pretty big battle. So what's the lesson here? Don't be afraid to approach the Lord with whatever your problem is. Well, it's an embarrassing problem. So what? You bring it to God anyway. You bring it to God anyway. Because one, for one thing, like this woman, that's an act of faith. To even approach Him in prayer with that problem, that's an act of faith. And that, and 
God sees that and he understands that language. He, under, he wrote that language. He understands it very, very well. It's an act of faith. And second of all, you come to him in faith. He may very well answer that prayer. And you may find yourselves, you may find yourself a few pounds lighter as those shackles fall off of you. But he won't deliver if you don't come to him seeking deliverance. Well, he might. I mean, he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. So I don't want to try to box him in there. But don't be afraid to approach Jesus with your problem, no matter how big, no matter how small, how seemingly insignificant. Don't have one of these attitudes that a lot of people have. People that like never dare to ever call the pastor with a problem because they think he's too busy. That's the pastor's job. That's the whole reason he's a pastor. Well, not the whole reason, but it's part of the whole reason why he's a pastor. But it's the same way with God. A lot of people, not that I'm trying to equate a pastorate with God, not by a billion miles. Please don't misunderstand me there. But a lot of people have that same attitude regarding prayer. Well, uh, it's just a small problem. I mean, God's got a whole universe to run. Uh, he really can't be bothered with the sort of thing. It's silly. I can just handle it on my own. Uh, da -da 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 -da. No, 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 no. And I'll go back to that hymnal. I know it's not the same as the Word of God, but a lot of the old hymns were taken right out of Scripture or derived very um, derived from Scripture. There's that old hymn. We've referenced it before. Oh, what grace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear. What needless pains. Not, not just pains. Needless. Pointless suffering is the worst kind of suffering. Suffering that at least creates character in our lives, that's different, that's better, okay? But needless pain, needless suffering. He says, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Don't be afraid to approach the Lord with your need, even if it's an embarrassing need. Well, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be fighting this battle anyway because I know better. I should have overcome this years ago. I can't take this to God. God knows about it anyway, so why be embarrassed? He knows it already. The Bible tells us that he knows whatsoever things we need before we even ask. Well, then I shouldn't have to ask. See, you just let me off the hook. Nope. Because he tells us. He tells us in very plain language to bring our petitions, to make our petitions known to him. So, she took the risk. She approached our Lord, even if she did it coming from behind. Praise God. At least she approached him. So, I don't find any fault there. I don't think we can. She did it. She touched him. Jesus turned around, did not rebuke her, but said, daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. That's deliverance. That's deliverance. Right from the hand of the deliverer himself. Not just from one of the apostles. Right from the hand of Jesus Christ. Man, you don't, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. That is awesome. And so don't be, let's take that lesson to heart. Don't be afraid to approach the Lord with your need, no matter how grave, small, or potentially embarrassing, because God doesn't care. He just wants you to come to Him. He wants you to come to Him. Well, I feel selfish if I pray for myself. Crucify that thought. It's silly. I'm not saying you're silly if you have it. I'm saying that thought is silly. Somebody taught that to you. Somebody told you that. Somebody who didn't know, who didn't understand prayer and didn't understand God's attitude towards His people. 
So let's move on. The woman was made whole from that hour, it says in verse 22. In verse 23, moving forward. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house, because you remember this whole issue with the woman, or this woman with the issue of blood, this happened in the midst, in the middle of this other episode. Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise. What's that? Were they celebrating the death of this woman? No, these were the professional mourners. These were paid mourners. It was a service. It really was a thing. It existed back then. I don't, I don't know. You might find that in some Middle Eastern cultures to this day, but I know they had it in Jesus' time because people love to make a drama. And also, frankly, misery loves company, doesn't it? And when a person is mourning, the last thing that they want to see is a pack of happy children running by laughing without a care in the world. They want someone to come sit down with them and feel their pain with them to help them feel a little bit better. And not that it does, but it does help to know that someone's mourning with you. That's why we're told as believers to rejoice with them that rejoice and to mourn with them that mourn. Okay? You don't run up to your brother in the faith when they're down and out, when they've lost their job or when they've lost a loved one or when they're, when they're, when they're sick and throwing up everything that's inside of them. You don't run, you don't run up behind them and you know, slap them in the back and say, hey, brother, where's your faith? Come on, God's on the throne. What's wrong with you? Not wise. Certainly not compassionate. Let's mourn with those that mourn. But anyway, these were hired mourners, though, minstrels and people making a noise. And he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And then yet, I, I, always, I always take it, do a double take at this. And they laughed him to scorn. Weren't they mourning just a moment ago? I mean, they were wailing and crying and making a noise and mourning the death of this person. But in an instant, Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, give, make a hole. That's what we've said in the military all the time. Make a hole, people. In other words, get out of the way. Make a hole. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And on an instant, they turn on a dime and they start ridiculing him. They laughed him to scorn. All right, well, that tells me that their mourning was not real and genuine. Anyway, they were just doing their job. But when the people were put forth, verse 25, he went in and took her by the hand and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. First of all, he put all the scorners to silence because Jesus has that power. God has that power. Faith carries and delivers that power. Really does. Really does. Wasn't just for Jesus in the time of Jesus. There have been many disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 2,000 years since his coming and his going. There have been many that have raised up folks from the dead by a prayer of faith. It still happens. doesn't happen all the time, and we can't draw neat lines around it as far as the parameters are concerned. But so it is. So the fame thereof, the fame of him, the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. Next paragraph, verse 27, says, And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying, saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was coming to the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus saith, Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, Yea, Lord. Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Now why was he concealing it? 
we could probably dig into it and find a couple of reasons. Not particularly important reasons. What's important is what comes after that. But they, verse 31, but they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Now we know what the lesson is there. When God does something in your life, you can't shut up about it. It is hard. It is hard to be silent when God moves on your life and does something for you, whether it's just, whether it's not just as though it's something diminutive, I'm sorry, but whether it's the forgiveness of sins, when you first come out of the kingdom of darkness into light, and he's made you into a new creature in Christ, because that we've taught, the word makes very, very clear, that's an event that happens in an instant. It's not a process. So I'm in the process of getting saved. No, you're not. It's not a process. A process means that it's of works. Okay? Salvation is an event. It's the event of an instant. Whether it's that or whether it's a, a genuine healing that was accomplished in your life, you prayed and God touched your body, drove a sickness out of you or healed an injury, something like that, because that happens today too. Whatever it might be, maybe he just answered a prayer. Maybe he just answered a prayer, God, I really need you to move in my life. I really, I need deliverance from something or I need you to just bless my life in a certain way, meet this certain need, and then he does. And he does so in a way that's evident it's hard to be quiet about that sort of thing. These guys had their eyes opened. They were physically blind. I don't know if they were born with their eyes shut or if they were just, just couldn't see anything, whatever it was. Jesus touched them and gave them their eyesight. You can't stay quiet about that sort of thing. You really can't. And a lot of people, they live this sort of experience when they first come to Christ. When you first believed, when you were first born again, you wanted to tell everybody, didn't you? A lot of you. You wanted to tell everybody. And one of the first people you wanted to tell was mom and dad, especially if you were young. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Guess what just happened to me? I just became a Christian. And then dead silence on the other end of the phone because they're thinking, you were always a Christian. I raised you in the Lutheran church or whatever church that you were a part of. You know, what are you talking about? You know, I was there at your confirmation or whatever it was that you were a part of growing up. You know, what are you talking about? And then, so then you tried to explain it. No, no, really, I've been born again. Okay, now, you, now all the red flags go up in their mind, right? Because they're thinking, oh, great, it's part of a cult. What do you mean part of a cult? Born again, that's biblical language. That's not even, that's not even cult language, so to speak. Well, they take biblical language and twist it around anyway, but you had to tell somebody. You told mom and dad. You told your siblings. You told your boyfriend or your girlfriend if you had one. You told your spouse, or maybe you didn't because you were afraid what would happen. Who knows? It all depends on what was going on there. But you told somebody, hey, let me tell you what God did for me. Or something like this. You tell them, it's real. It's real. I prayed. I felt it. Or maybe I didn't feel anything, but I prayed, and then there was that certain knowledge in my heart, and in my mind. Or maybe there wasn't even that, but you just stood on the promises of God anyway. And then in time, it all just kind of came together in your mind, and it made sense. It's hard to stay quiet when God does something for you. Let's move on. I really want to get to chapter 10. As they went out, verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with the devil. Doesn't mean that he was a stupid man. It means that he was mute. Dumb meant he did not have the power of speech. They brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. He spoke out loud. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so. It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out, he casteth out devils 
through the prince of devils. You can always count on people to find fault what you're doing. Especially if you're trying to do something good. If you try to stand for the right, and I think we shared this a little bit on Sunday night, people who try hard to do what's right always seem a little crazy, don't we? People who try hard to do what's right always seem a little crazy. And I, I'm thinking of lots of different examples. But you know, if you've ever stood on your principles on the Word of God, if you've ever stood on them at all in the face of somebody trying to get you to give in, do something wrong, or do something common that God simply does not want you to do, if you've ever stood on that, you've caught heat from it, and you know what we're talking about here. These Pharisees, here, Jesus comes on the scene, delivers a man from demonic possession. That's a big, big deal. Because a person possessed by an unclean spirit, a person possessed by an unclean spirit, they are not their own master. They are controlled. And that is a horrifying thing. That really is a horrifying thing. I'm not saying it's a big Hollywood affair like they make it out to be in the movies and the exorcist and things like that. You don't have people with their heads spinning around on their shoulders, barfing out pea green soup and all of that. None of that really attends demonic possession. Not that we read of in scriptures. But there are some terrible things that do attend demonic possession. But the point is, is that Jesus arrives on the scene, delivers a man from this horrible state of living, this horrible state of affairs, and what do the Pharisees do? The only thing they can do is stand there and make accusations. Why couldn't they rejoice? Same thing with the guy uh, delivered of all those uh, demons that had possessed him that then uh, uh, implored the Lord to let, him, let them go into the herd of swine. And they wanted him to leave their town. Why couldn't they rejoice? Why do people have such a hard time rejoicing when God does something good in someone's life? Nope, they got to find fault. they got to say, like these guys, well, he, he casts out devils by the prince of devils. That doesn't even make any sense, does it? Because the devil would love to see everybody possessed and driven to self-destruction and driven into all manner of wickedness and all of these things. But that was their attitude. When the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, the multitudes marveled. The Pharisees said he cast out devils by the prince of devils. Jesus went on, and Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now there's a big lesson sitting right here in these three verses. Well, what's the lesson here? Let's pick it up again, verse 36. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted, and were scattered. It means that they were faint. It doesn't mean that they fell out unconscious, okay? He saw them, that they, they fainted, they were weary, is what he was saying. They were what this is saying. They fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. All right, now that's the lead up. That's the lead up. That's kind of, I don't know if anybody in here ever played volleyball besides my wife and I at various times. Surely you've played volleyball at some time in your life. You know, you bump, set, and then hopefully somebody spikes it and makes it. Well, this is kind of the bump right here. He saw them scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. That's people everywhere. 
sheep with no shepherd. It's not a derogatory. It's not a derogatory comparison. It's not derogatory at all. It's not insulting. It should not be offensive. Nobody should take offense to this. We are likened as sheep in numerous places in Scripture. Well, they're just sheep. Okay, fine. I'm a sheep. Well, I'd rather be a sheep of the Lord than a sheep of the devil. Because you're going to be a sheep of one or the other. Okay? So he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. What's that mean? People having no spiritual leadership. We've got a lot of folks like this in Cheyenne. And maybe this seems like a real evangelical push. I remember our, our message last Thursday was kind of directed towards reaching out with the gospel message, reaching out with an invitation, reaching out, sharing our faith with another human being who is dying, is lost, and is on their way to a Christless eternity. And I think it came up again this Sunday, either in the morning or the evening service, and it's coming up again tonight. Sheep with no shepherd. We have a lot of people like this in Cheyenne, even people that name the name of Christ. Haven't been to church in five years. Haven't been in a church in 10 years. Haven't been a part of any kind of a ministry in 15 years. Not a part of it at all. Sheep with no shepherd. Well, I can make it on my own. No, you can't. No, you can't. Take it from me, I've tried it. And I'm thinking of another brother who's tried it too. And he'll bear witness to the same thing. You can't. We need one another. We need the house of God. We need the family of God. We need each other just as much as we need God himself. That's why Jesus said, speaking to Peter, he said, upon this rock I will build my church. He wasn't saying upon Peter I'll build my church. All right. Yes, I know Peter's name means a rock or a stone. I understand that. But Peter was not the stone. Jesus is the stone. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. Well, why build his church if we can get by without it? Oh, well, I can pray alone at home in my house. Yes, we all can and we all should. We all ought to very, very often. We ought to live in a state of prayer. And it takes practice, I understand. It takes growth to get to that place where you're living in just a, a constant state of communion with God. And, and it doesn't make you weird when you're like that. You don't walk around like some roped monk mumbling your Latin or whatever, or like some charismatic, oh, I just feel them all the time everywhere, everywhere I go. No, 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 no. It's just living your life in constant communion with God. It's not some flaky, goofy, weird thing. It's very, it's very naturally supernatural. Does that make sense? I, I framed it that way on purpose. And, and it's, it's actually a wonderful thing. It really, really is. You want lasting peace in your life, live in that state and you'll have it. But... He saw them as sheep scattered abroad having no shepherd. We need our shepherd. And I'm talking about Jesus. We need our shepherd. We need the Holy Ghost. We need God the Father. We need God all together. And we need Him in our lives. We need Him in our hearts. And we need the company and the communion of His saints. Don't we? And by saints, you know we're not talking about the, the little... Catholic icons or Orthodox icons of primitive paintings of people looking like this. You know we're not talking about that. Those aren't saints. Those are pictures. Who are the saints? The saints are every one of us who are born again by the Spirit of God. That's a saint. You don't have to be canonized. You don't have to be 
ratified. That's not the right language. You don't have to be canonized or whatever the phraseology is. It doesn't have to go up before a board, a council of cardinals or whatever to say, okay, you're a saint. No. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and he's washed you clean of your sins and made you born again by the Spirit of God, you are a saint. Accept it. Own it. Wear that label in your mind because that's what you are. And it's important to identify as that to yourself. It's important. We're all about identity politics in our busted country now anyway. So let's go ahead and just ride that to our advantage. It's important to remember and to think of yourself as a saint. Because when you do, then you stop thinking of yourself as a sinner. Because when you identify as a sinner, then you'll justify sinning. You'll justify going against the word of God. You'll just, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. If you're a sinner, it's because you are not saved. If you're saved by grace, then you have ceased to be a sinner. No, it does not mean that you don't perhaps make a bad call or deliberately go against the word at some point or the, the will of God at some point. People do that. They shouldn't. We don't have to. We're not doomed to that, okay? But it means we don't live in it. And we don't justify it. And when, as soon as we come to our senses by the grace of God, we pray and we make it right. And we put that action, that behavior, or that attitude, whatever it might be, we put it behind us. We put it behind us. Well, give me some Bible to back that up. Go read James. Go read in the, in the book of James where, where James admonishing, the apostle James admonishing says that if one of you be overtaken in a fault, let you who are spiritual, let you who are spiritual, and i got to paraphrase it now, let you who are spiritual go and restore such a one. So yes, there's Bible precedent, brother, for a follow-up ministry for a recovering ministry, for those that uh, they get their thinking crossed up with God or whatever and they decide they're just going to step out of, they're just going to leave the faith and, and go do their own thing. Not to say they stopped believing in God necessarily, but they just sort of dropped, they've just dropped their lamp and walked away from Christianity altogether. Well, hey, you don't just write them off as, you know, claimed by the fires of hell. What happened to leaving the 90 and 9? Amen? Well, who does it? Well, Jesus does that. Okay, well, are we not the body of Jesus Christ? We're the body of Christ. So, shouldn't somebody who's spiritual, as James said, that you are spiritual, you know, not the goofball who can't ever be serious, you know, but, you know, neither the stick in the mud who doesn't know how to take a joke. You, know, you get a balance in there, okay? But he said, let you who are spiritual, let some brother go after them, and the pastor will do it. Trust me, he'll try in most cases. But there's nothing wrong with a brother going after a brother and saying, hey, what's going on? God loves you. You can make this right because the devil's already been working on that poor soul. You know they have, telling them and condemning them and saying, you can't make it right. God won't forgive you. You can never get back to where you were in God. Don't ever listen to that voice. Don't ever listen to that voice. God loves and desires to restore. Sheep having no shepherd. Then saith his disciples unto him, or then saith he unto his disciples, excuse me, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few and if that doesn't talk about some churches call it soul winning some churches call it outreach soul winning almost sounds kind of ghoulish to some people soul winning no 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 no, no. 
outreach. Call it outreach. Call it personal evangelism. Call it what you want to call it. He says the harvest is plenty. He's not talking about the corn. He's not talking about the wheat. He's not talking about the turnips. He's not talking about the rutabagas. He's talking about souls. He's talking, and what I mean by souls is not some weird ephemeral thing. He's talking about living human beings. And just as important as we were talking about how important it is for us as believers to remember to identify ourselves as saints of the Most High God. It's important, it's just as important to remember that when you see somebody walking past you on the street, or somebody walking past you at the Walmart, or wherever it is that you are, at the, at the Drinco de Mayo festival they had going down on the, uh, the corner there last Saturday. When you walk past somebody, you see somebody go past you, you don't look at them as a body with a soul. You look at them as a soul with a body. They are a living soul. The life in them is the soul. The soul and the spirit, those eternal things that endure long after this crude matter has perished and is falling apart in the grave. You look at them as a soul. You see that whether it's an unattractive person, it's somebody who's ugly as a mud fence, overweight, big as a house, none of that matters. It's important because that affects the way people think about people. Oh, I only invite pretty people to church. What? We should invite everybody. Now, if somebody coming at you with a gun, you're probably not in inviting mode. But that might be a good time to do it. I think I'd rather check out of this life in the midst of doing something that was my father's business. Okay? It doesn't matter. People short, tall, fat, skinny, old, young, rich, poor, clean, dirty, you know. You, you know the whole list of comparisons. They're souls with bodies. Every one of us is a soul with a body. It's really not the other way around. He says the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And then he tells us what to do with that. Verse 38, he says, pray ye. You pray. That's what he says. Pray ye, therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. 80,000 people in Cheyenne. 80,000. And you know most of them do not know the Lord. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. Alright, I'll pray that the Lord sends His angels. He doesn't do it that way. You know He doesn't do it that way. He never did it that way. The gospel has been spread by word of mouth. It's been spread by the testimony of believers. It's been spread by those whose, whose lives God has touched. That's how the gospel is spread. If it's just a simple church invitation, that's not the same as sharing the gospel, but it sure is opening a door to it, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with that. So you're really overtly pushing this thing, aren't you? God's done something for you. Wouldn't you like to see God do that for someone else? Wouldn't you like to see someone else whose life is strung out and broken on the rocks of sin come to know the Lord and have their life renewed in Jesus Christ? Cleansed, forgiven. Uh, I think I mentioned it last Thursday. I was a sinner and still telling people about Jesus because I knew what he could do. That was back in my teenage years before he really apprehended me. Surely we 
as saints of the Most High God, as believers, we can take a moment, break through our introversion. And I could talk like that. I'll talk trash about introverts all day long because I am one by nature. You don't think I am, but God has worked on me for about 25 years, okay? But I'm an introvert by nature. And if you used to be, if you gave me half a chance, I'd just, I'd sit at home on a couch with a book. Bye. See you later. Large crowds? Nope. Ain't doing it. But surely we can take a moment, climb out of our introvert shell when there's, when the opportunity, when the Lord brings an opportunity our way. Remember we talked earlier in our red letter studies about don't miss a divine opportunity. Don't miss a divine opportunity for the sake of what is comfortable or familiar. You could apply that to this too. Okay? Harvesting is work. I understand. We do it every Saturday, Reverend Ryder, don't we? We go out every Saturday and invite people. Brother Bob and I are supposed to be, if uh, time and weather permitting, if things work out right and things don't shut us down, tomorrow night, Brother Bob and I are supposed to be going out. We're going to be reaching out to some people, just folks in the streets. Why not? Why not? Well, they'll look at me like I'm crazy. So what? We're half crazy anyway. Not really, but we're perceived to be. We're actually in our sound mind. We're in our right minds. It's just they think we're nuts because we don't run to the same excess of riot, the Bible says. You know, why not talk to somebody you know? Talk to somebody you know. Talk to a complete stranger. They're not going to eat you. Cannibalism's illegal. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. That's the end of chapter 9. Something for us to consider. Something for us to pray about. In, in our, well, we don't have a prayer meeting tonight, but uh, something for us to pray about at home before we go to bed. Something for us to think about in the days to come. Something for us to act on when God opens a door of opportunity. Send someone our way and we have a chance and you feel the Spirit of God move upon you or move within you and say, why don't you say something to that guy? Why don't you invite him? Or why don't you ask him if he knows Jesus? Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.